Welcome back to our summer short series from the Freud in Focus podcast with Tom DeRose and me, Jamie Brewers. So we started this series with an essay called Creative Writers in Daydreaming, a paper from 1908 where we touched upon sources of creativity. Freud came at this subject as a combination of past experiences mixed with wish fulfillments, and he recalled his seminal text, The Interpretation of Dreams, to support that investigation. This week, we're jumping ahead almost two decades to a short essay called On Humor from 1927. Tom, I'm going to hand over to you now. Could you provide a bit of context around this paper? Well, yeah, last week, um, it was a bit unexpected, wasn't it, in the end? Because um, we began by saying that we'll be concentrating on shorter, lighter papers. And we ended up in a 35-minute discussion of high Freudian theory. But today, I promise that we will be true to our marketing and keep it short and light. So as you mentioned, Jamie, today we'll be discussing Freud's 1927 paper on humour. As always, we'll take a look at the context on what Freud was concerned with at the time of writing. So today's paper was published in the same year as Freud's famous assault on religion, The Future of an Illusion, and a paper on fetishism. He also wrote another short piece entitled A Religious Experience, and a longer, more substantial paper on Dostoevsky and Parricide. So it was quite a productive year for Freud as far as writing goes and his mind was clearly turned towards cultural phenomena. In 1923, in The Ego and the Id, Freud had developed a new model of the mind, which he described as structural. It's an important work, particularly in relation to the paper on humour that we'll be discussing today. So just briefly then, Freud had become increasingly aware of the fact that his work through the second decade of the 20th century, which culminated in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, meant that he had to reassess the concept of the ego. It was no longer appropriate to equate the unconscious solely with the repressed and the ego with the forces of repression. I'll admit here that I'm oversimplifying things a little just for the sake of brevity. But in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, Freud had remarked that the ego also has an unconscious aspect. And this is fully systematised in the ego and the id. It's a complex work, and it's one that we'll be tackling uh, next year probably in another Freud and Focus podcast. But for our current purposes, the crucial theoretical breakthrough that Freud makes in this paper is the introduction of the superego. Of course, we came across the superego in civilization and its discontents. And we'll remember that it appears as a kind of resolution of the Oedipus complex. It's an identification with the all-too-powerful father, who is introjected and becomes the critical voice of conscience for the ego. We'll also remember the fact that the superego kept the ego under surveillance, and also the violence with which it attacks the ego. We'll recall phrases like, um, nothing can be hidden from the superego, not even thoughts. Or, the superego torments the sinful ego, and it's on the lookout for opportunities in the outside world to get the ego punished. 
So it's a kind of harsh and cruel agency then. Well, in relation to humour, as we'll see later on, a different side of the superego comes into view. Now, as far as the subject matter goes, the key text related to on humour is, of course, Freud's 1905 work, Jokes and Their Relation to the Unconscious. There's a more than 20-year gap between these two pieces, and Freud's perspective is now somewhat different. He describes how, in the joke book, he had sought to explain the phenomenon of humour from a purely economic point of view from the view of how psychical energy is expended within the system in order to produce a yield of pleasure. For Freud, the pleasure gained in humour is produced from an economy of, of expenditure upon feeling. However, in the current paper that we're discussing today, Freud will look to analyse humour from the perspective of the psychical structures. Great. So we've done a little whistle-stop tour of texts from Beyond the Pleasure Principle, Civilization's Discontents, Ego and the Id. But as you say, this essay really harks back to the joke and its relation to the unconscious. Let's now look closely at the text. How does Freud begin the paper? Well, Freud begins by distinguishing two different ways by which the humorous process can take place. Firstly, the humorous attitude operates internally. So, when a criminal, who is being led to the gallows on a Monday morning, says, well, the week's beginning nicely, and just to add, this is Freud's example, not mine, <laughs> he is producing the humour himself, and he gains satisfaction from it. But importantly, even in this instance, which we might describe as intrapsychic, Freud also indicates the presence of a spectator. As a spectator or a non-participating listener, in Freud's formulation, <clears throat> we are affected at long range. He writes that we feel like him. So at first glance, there's a kind of empathy here, but it's not quite that. We don't feel into the situation of the criminal as such, but we feel the yield of humorous pleasure at second hand, so we feel it aesthetically. Now, the second way in which the humorous attitude takes place is between two people, one of whom takes no part in the humor humorous process. So here, the writer or narrator describes the behaviour of real or imaginary people in a humorous manner. They are the object of the process rather than the subject. We might think of satirical writing, perhaps, in this respect. Again, there is a, a spectator involved in the process. So the reader or hearer shares in the enjoyment of the humour. So the humorous attitude can be directed either towards the subject's own self or towards other people. But crucially, in both instances, somehow, a non-participating uh, spectator sorry, is implicated. Someone who takes enjoyment from the situation. So there's always another. We'll pick this up a bit later on when we come to discuss the structural model of the mind and the humorous attitude. 
Freud's analysis continues from the position of this spectator. It's easier to understand the genesis of the yield of humorous pleasure if we consider the process in light of the listener before whom someone else produces humour, writes Freud. A slightly clumsy formulation, but it's clear that the spectator takes centre stage. So Freud is still working in the aesthetic tradition that we discussed in The Uncanny a couple of series ago. What happens then is that our expectation as a spectator is disappointed. We see a situation in which we expect a character to show signs of a particular affect. So we might expect them to get angry or horrified perhaps. <clears throat> and we are, in Freud's words, willing to follow their lead and call up the same emotions in ourselves. But the tension that is produced in the expectation of being released in anger or in despair is in fact disappointed. If the character themselves doesn't display the affect or makes a joke at the situation, we also mirror this affect. So the tension is transformed into humorous pleasure. Freud writes that the expenditure on feeling that is economised turns into humorous pleasure. It's the same economic process by which libido is transformed into anxiety in anxiety neurosis. Although here we have a kind of healthy psychical solution for the tension, which can be transformed and released in a socially acceptable way. Again, we'll pick up some of the implications of this position a little further down the line. Thanks, Tom. That's a really interesting start. I'm now just going to read straight from the essay from page 162 of the Standard Edition. It is now time to acquaint ourselves with those characteristics of humour. Like jokes and the comic, humour has something liberating about it, but it also has something of grandeur and elevation, which is lacking in the other two ways of obtaining pleasure from intellectual activity. The grandeur in it clearly lies in the triumph of narcissism, the victorious assertion of the ego's invulnerability. The ego refuses to be distressed by the provocations of reality to let itself be compelled to suffer. It insists that it cannot be affected by the traumas of the external world. It shows, in fact, that such traumas are no more than occasions for it to gain pleasure. This last feature is a quite essential element of humour. Let us suppose that the criminal who was being led to execution on Monday had said, it doesn't worry me. What does it, what does it matter, after all, if a fellow like me is hanged? The world won't come to an end because of it. We should have to admit that such a speech does in fact display the same magnificent superiority over the real situation. It is wise and true, but it does not portray a trace of humour. Indeed, it is based on an appraisal of reality, which runs directly counter to the appraisal made by humour. Humour is not resigned, it is rebellious. It signifies not only the triumph of the ego, but also of the pleasure principle, 
which is able here to assert itself against the unkindness of the real circumstances. Okay, so let's summarize what Freud's saying. How, how does Freud differentiate humour from jokes here? Well, Freud had previously discussed humour, hadn't he, from the position of the spectator. And then he suggests that the psychical processes that occur within the spectator are a kind of mirror of what happens in the humorist. So if the hearer experiences an echo of the humorist's attitude, what then are the characteristics of humour itself? As you read, Jamie, humour shares the liberating feeling that is associated with jokes and the comic, but it also has a kind of grandeur or elevation. I think this language is, is reminiscent, really, of the romantic sublime to a certain extent. Although here it's not the grandeur of connection to an absolute, of the ennobling link to divine reason, but in fact to an illusion, a regression even, to a state in which the ego asserts its invulnerability, to a kind of triumph of narcissism. Although humour may have a grandeur or elevation about it, it does not act in the same way as a kind of stoic resignation, a magnificent superiority, an heroic acceptance of tragic destiny. Humour, Freud writes, is rebellious, not resigned. It celebrates the triumph of the ego over the privations of reality, and also the triumph of the pleasure principle. Now this all sounds a little bit like it's describing an instance of regression. The rejection of, real of the reality principle and the putting through of the, of the pleasure principle is often related to psychopathology, in that it is a formation that attempts to evade the compulsion to suffer. Other mechanisms in this series include neurosis, intoxication, self-absorption, ecstasy, all the way through to madness, suggests Freud. But whilst we would think that the rejection of reality in these mechanisms would prove to be unsuccessful, in that they can eventually compound our suffering, humour somehow works. It's an incredibly effective way of dealing with the disappointments and privations of reality. Now, whereas jokes simply attempt to gain a yield of pleasure or place the yield of pleasure in the service of, of aggression, humour has a dignity, has the dignity of an attempt to victoriously maintain the pleasure principle and elevate the ego to the status of invulnerability, but without the dangers to mental health, which the other solutions mentioned above kind of possess. How then is this possible? What happens on an interpersonal level, suggests Freud, when there are two people involved in the humorous situation, is that the humorist takes the position of an adult towards the child. So when a humorist makes light of someone's concerns, he is behaving, as Freud writes, as an adult does towards a child when he recognises and smiles at the triviality of interests and sufferings 
which seems so great to him. What we have then in humour is a mechanism that goes via the other. It operates in the relation between one position, the adult, and another position, the child. How does this make sense though when we think about the humorous attitude in the single individual when another person who takes the position of the child is not present? The answer to this question can be found in the theoretical advances that Freud puts forward in the ego and the id. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Freud goes on to discuss humour in the context of the structural, mod structural model of the mind, the id, ego, superego. It seems that this is a crucial development in the theory, particularly in relation to humour. Oh, definitely. I mean, Freud begins in this kind of towards the end of this paper to uh, pose a rhetorical question so we've we've got to this place haven't we whereby freud has distinguished two different positions the adults and the childs and then he goes on to ask is there any sense in saying that someone is treating himself as a child and is at the same time playing the part of the superior adult towards the child this is a seemingly kind of nonsensical statement, but it actually makes perfect sense when it's interpreted through the findings of the ego and the id. We find there that the ego is not a simple entity, in Freud's words, but it harbours within it a special agency called the superego. At times, this special agency appears to be merged with the ego and at times, it appears to be sharply differentiated from it. We'll remember, of course, from our discussion of civilization and its discontents, that the superego develops out of an identification with the father. Or, as Freud writes here, the superego is heir to the paternal agency. So here we have the positions of father, superego, and child, ego, already in place. The humorous attitude would consist then in the psychical accent of the individual being transposed from the ego to the superego, which then becomes inflated and easily able to forestall the ego's normal reactions. All this I think is pretty clear from a structural point of view. But how does this transposition, this movement, actually take place? Here, Freud takes his theory of cathexis and applies it to the psychical apparatus. So just as when, when we fall in love, a large amount of cathexis is emptied out from our ego and is passed over onto the object. So in the humorous attitude, a large amount of cathexis is displaced from the ego onto the superego. Now this model is lifted from Freud's studies in psychopathology. In paranoia, ideas of persecution are formed early on, Freud suggests, but it is only later that they become dominant in the psyche, after a particular event leads them to be invested with sufficient amounts of cathexis. 
So the cure of paranoiac attacks does not come down to a kind of rational correction of the delusional ideas that underpin them. But it comes down to the withdrawal of cathexis from these ideas. The alterations between melancholia and mania, Freud writes, also reflect this shift in cathexis. So we're reminded here of Freud's whole conception of the human being, really. Pathology does not exist out there. Paranoia, neurosis, humour, they're all different ways in which we try to solve the riddle of frustrated desire, according to the strength and constitution of our own libido. So by studying the movement of cathexis in pathology, we can help illuminate parallel currents in everyday cultural phenomena such as humour. So how then can we define the psychical processes that occur in the manifestation of the humorous attitude? Under Freud's model, humour comes about from a sudden hypercathexis of the superego which in turn reaffirms the relation between the superego and the ego in the original position of parent and infant. The ego then is allowed to enjoy the illusion of its own limitless freedom as the superego looks on affectionately and indulgently. We are met then not with a violent and tyrannical superego, on the lookout for opportunities for the ego to be punished, but a kindly, indulgent agency, which allows the ego to enjoy its five minutes of fame, its illusion of invincibility, and checks the domination of the reality principle, so that the pleasure principle can enjoy at least the semblance of a period of unrestrained freedom. It's a kind of managed illusion if you will. Reminiscent of Hans Sachs's great Vaughan monologue from Act 3 of Wagner's Die Meistersinger, one of the few operas that Freud admitted to enjoying, how do you solve the madness or illusion of the world? By introducing a little of your own. So the difference between humour and jokes for Freud is as follows. A joke is the contribution made to the comic by the unconscious whilst humour is the contribution made to the comic through the agency of the superego. So whilst we never reach the intensity of pleasure through the humorous attitude that we do in joking, we nevertheless feel it to be more liberating and elevating. Like in the Fort Dar game, and the attempt to gain mastery over trauma by repeating it symbolically. Humour somehow offers us a managed and controlled response to the privation and suffering that reality continues to subject us to. No wonder W.E.B. Du Bois described laughter as a divine gift. Thank you so much, Tom. And I'm so impressed that you managed to get a Wagner reference in on a paper about humor. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, 
It's a bit gratuitous, but never mind. <laughs> very contrasting <laughs> subjects. <laughs> um, but no, this was very nice, succinct paper for the summer. Thank you so much, Tom. Um, and I just want to make a little link here as well with what's on at the Freud Museum right now. So we've just opened uh, a brand new exhibition um, of the work of Lucian Freud, Sigmund Freud's grandson. This is the first exhibition of the great British painter's work at the Freud Museum exploring his relationships with family and early life. And Lucian is said to have not really engaged much with Sigmund's writings throughout his life, except for two texts, Studies in Hysteria and The Joke and its Relation to the Unconscious. So the only two texts he's claimed to have read. If you'd like to come and visit the exhibition, it's on now at the Freud Museum until January, 2023. But for now, we'll see you next time for our third and final paper of the Summer Short series. And thanks to our producer, Carolina Heller, and to all of you for listening at home. Take care.